Acts 19, starting in verse one. We're gonna read the first 10 verses. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus, verse five. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all, verse eight. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greek who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Pretty incredible story, I'm excited to unpack this morning together, but I want to begin by telling you the story of somebody that you've probably never heard about, um, probably someone you will never meet. Um, this is the story of David Ballou. Uh, so David Ballou, he grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama in the 1970s and 1980s. Now, David Ballou, he grew up in a family in a uh, neighborhood in Huntsville, and David's family uh, had been Christians for a long time. Uh, David was a follower of Jesus. His parents were followers of Jesus. Um, you would have considered this a, a Christian home. Now, one of David's best friends who lived a couple streets over, his name was Grady. And now Grady grew up in a very different home. He did not grow up in a home that loved and followed Jesus. Now, David, Ballou, and his family, every Sunday morning, they would take the same uh, route to church. And Every Sunday morning, they would make a pit stop, and that pit stop would be in front of Grady's house. And so every Sunday morning, they would drive, they would stop in front of Grady's home, and David would essentially just extend an invitation, hey, do you want to join me for, for worship this morning? Sometimes Grady would go, sometimes Grady wouldn't, um, but after a while, probably hundreds of invitations, Grady ended up deciding to follow Jesus. And at the age of 18, he gave his life to Christ and was baptized and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the cool thing is um, later down the road, Grady became a pastor and he's pastored the same church for the past 36 years where he himself has baptized hundreds of people into the family of God. And here's the cool thing about David. Nobody has ever heard of David, but I am standing here this morning because of David Ballou. You see, Grady is my father and I love telling this story because my dad, Grady, went on to love and disciple me alongside of my mom to love and follow Jesus. So the fact I'm here today is a result of, of David. God's story is often at work in, in the few and the small moments. See, I think about it all the time. I think, okay, Grady's story would have been a lot different had one person not decided to invest in his life. And God has been reminding me all week, and this is really where we're gonna hone in what we're gonna talk about this morning. 
He's been reminding me through my story, through my dad's story, through this story here in Acts chapter 19, is that more often than not, Jesus invites us to invest in a few, to invest in the one, and not be worried about convincing the crowds. Not be worried about having a large platform or a big influence. But this isn't how the rest of the world operates, is it? This is so countercultural in so many ways to be worried about the few, to be, to be worried about the, 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 the core rather than the crowd. And something we've seen over and over again in the book of Acts, and for those of you who haven't been with us in this book, we're gonna be looking today at, once again, the countercultural ways of Jesus and his kingdom. You see, in the early church, as Acts was actually being lived out, there was somewhat of a status quo um, that both the political and cultural uh, minds of the time were trying to, to keep in place. The status quo, both politically and culturally, that they wanted to keep in place. And here's the reality that we've seen so far in the book of Acts, is the kingdom of God does not conform to the status quo. The kingdom of God, it's this, it's subversive, it's a wild, it's a free way of living that is unlike anything anybody had ever experienced before. It was truly countercultural. It was truly different than anything anybody had ever experienced. You see, the movement of Jesus in the book of Acts, it's spreading like wildfire. It's spreading like crazy, but it's not spreading in the ways that you might think. They weren't holding these big Christian conferences in all the major ancient cities. What's happening is it's spreading through ordinary, average, spirit-filled men and women of God who one by one, little by little, home by home, and then city by city, they're awakening the movement that Jesus began in such a countercultural way. And it's one of those things that doesn't make sense. You're on the outside and you're looking in and you're thinking, how is this happening? That's what the political powers at the time were thinking. How is this movement continuing to, to progress even though we're doing everything that we can to stop it? When you wanna to begin to understand a kingdom and how it works, what do you do? You look at the king. You wanna understand a kingdom, you look at the king. And so in the kingdom of God, we look at King Jesus and we do not see a king that came to rule and to reign, which would have been what most people were expecting. We don't have a king that rules and reigns, but we have a king that came to serve and to die. Okay, now, when this is the blueprint handed to you, like when this is the blueprint that's given, this kingdom is gonna look very different than anything anyone had ever experienced before. We've seen it starting at the very beginning of Acts. Let's go back. I wanna just name some of these countercultural ways of the kingdom of God, and it's really gonna help us live into this last countercultural way that I'm going to uh, unpack this morning. And so let's jump back. Acts chapter one, for those of you who haven't been with us, this is gonna kind of be helpful to see how the kingdom of God is moving and advancing. Jesus, in Acts chapter one, he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. He's getting ready to give him the plan. And you think, okay, he's gonna tell us to go. He's gonna tell us to get a strategy. And this is what Jesus says. He says, I want you to wait. I want you to wait. They're like, wait a second. You want us to wait? You want us to wait and sit and pray? Like, that's, 
That's what you're inviting us to do. That's how you want us to start awakening this movement. He says, yeah, I want you to sit and wait. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit falls. I think that's God's way of saying, hey, let me do the heavy lifting. You think you have a plan? Okay, I have a better way. Let me do the heavy lifting. Acts chapter two. We see just the countercultural ways of their selflessness. Go back and read Acts chapter two if you've never written Acts. Acts chapter two, you see the early believers. I mean, the way that they are selflessly serving and loving one another is, is beyond me. I still have a hard time understanding it. You see, in this culture that's just saturated with self-gratification, uh, Jesus invites us to live counterculturally with this um, self-denial way of living in the kingdom of God. From the outside looking in, it doesn't make a lot of sense because what's happening is you find the early believers have a deeper joy, a deeper peace within them, e even though they're, they're actually giving up what, what they want. Okay, we're gonna continue the countercultural ways of Jesus, Acts chapter eight. In many other places in the book of Acts, you see persecution, you see pain, you see heartache, you see hardship all throughout Acts. And you would think, okay, this is the antithesis of the movement of God. This is gonna stop the movement of God. This is gonna stop the movement from spreading. And what you actually see is the persecution, the pain, the heartache, the difficult moments is what actually propels the movement farther and faster. I'm gonna name another. All throughout Acts, you have this culture that's just riddled with hierarchy and segregation based upon culture, race, religion, status, segregated culture. And then you have this diverse, multi-ethnic community united in Jesus, something no one had ever seen before. People who had major differences united like they had never been united before. Now these cultural norms don't really sound all that different, do they? 2,000 years ago, today, I think we can relate a little bit. And that's why we continue to open up the word of God because it's living, it's breathing, it's still speaking a better way of living to us today. And again, this morning, we're gonna see a countercultural way of Jesus and his kingdom. How investing in and discipling a few has exponential growth in the kingdom of God. See, I'm not making this up. I just get this from Jesus. This is what Jesus says. He says, hey, here's what the kingdom of God's like. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Thinking mustard seed, okay, it's really, really small. If you've never seen a mustard seed, it's really, really tiny. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You're gonna take this mustard seed, you're gonna plant it. It's gonna turn into a tree bigger than you ever fathom or imagine. He says, it starts small, but it grows big. And Hear me say this this morning. God will often use the small. He will often use the few. He will often use the little that we have and do more with it than we can fathom or imagine. You see, in a culture that worships the biggest, the loudest, the most influential, God will often use the smallest and the meekest to do the biggest things in his kingdom. And my hope is that this morning, as we walk away from our time together, each of us are empowered to invest in one person. Like that's my goal this morning, one person. 
Invest in one person, pray for one person. Love one person, serve one person. Because I'm thinking, okay, Jesus, he had 12. Paul here in Acts chapter 19 had 12. Let's start with one, see how that goes. I don't know about you, but that's kind of my starting place. Let's, let's just start with one. Let's start with investing in one, pouring into one. And I think it's gonna be helpful for us this morning. Just take a closer look at these disciples, these nameless disciples, and understand a few things about them. I want us to look at who they were, what they did, and how they did it. Who, what, how. And we're gonna start with the who. The who is always the most important thing because typically who a person is is gonna determine what a person does and how a person does it. So let's, let's begin by looking at this. Who, who are these disciples? You see, Paul arrives at Ephesus, and I wanna, I wanna give us a little bit of background, a little bit of context. I'm a history guy, so I kinda like to understand where we're at in this story. And so Paul's on his third missionary journey here in Ephesus when he stumbles upon these disciples. So he's been to Ephesus before. He's come back to Ephesus again. We don't know whether he maybe knew about them at some time, but here we are in the city of Ephesus. It's a big city, about 250,000 people at the time in an area of the world known as Asia Minor. This is actually Turkey, modern-day Turkey. So when you think about a map, Mediterranean Sea, Aegean Sea, here we are at the edge of the Aegean Sea in Ephesus. So it's a pretty big city, pretty busy city. And Paul arrives and he finds this group of disciples who had been discipled by John the Baptist. Now, if you don't know anything about John the Baptist, John the Baptist was the one who came before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. And so John the Baptist, he came as was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. And we know that John the Baptist came to, to preach a baptism of repentance, basically saying, hey, the Messiah's coming. The kingdom of God is coming near. I, you need to prepare your hearts. Prepare your hearts for Jesus. Turn to God, turn from your evil ways. And that's what John the Baptist did over and over and over again. So he had these disciples. They, they, they missed the memo somehow. We don't really know why or how, but they missed the memo. Jesus had come. Jesus had lived. Jesus had died. Jesus had risen. Jesus had ascended to heaven. And he has given the Holy Spirit to the believers. And they, they, they missed the memo, pretty important memo, I would say. And Paul, the great disciple maker, he begins asking them questions. He begins asking them questions to kind of undercover uncover where they're at in their journey. And I ask people, all the, people ask me all the time, okay, how, how, do, I, how do I disciple people? Like, what, is, what does this actually look like? And we're not gonna dive deeply into this right now in the moment, but we can take our cues from Paul and it's pretty insightful here. Here's what he does. He asks questions and he listens. He asks questions and he listens. It's amazing what happens when you just sit and listen and allow people to speak. And so that's what he's doing here. Let's jump back in, verse, verse two. Y'all with me? Sorry, I feel like I'm talking a little fast. Verse two, okay. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one that is coming after him, that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, I wanna make an observation here. Paul uses the word disciples. 
So it, I think Paul's seeing something in these believers that were a little bit off. You know, they, they didn't have it all figured out, but Paul sees something in them. He's like, okay, they've got the best of intentions. They're just missing a few key pieces. And I say key piece because they aren't experiencing the fullness of Jesus. They aren't experiencing the fullness of the life that Jesus came for us to have. Man, Jesus tells us, he says, hey, I have come so you may have life and life to the full. Life to the full. That, that's what's on the table for them. That's what's on the table for us. And I don't know how you think about a life full of Jesus or, or what a life overflowing in God looks like, but I was just kind of reflecting upon that this week. I said, okay, what, what does a life full of Jesus look like? And I thought about a couple things, both the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. When I think about a life that is full of Jesus, it is overflowing with the fruits of the Spirit. And if you've never heard of the fruits of the Spirit, I, I wanna, I'm gonna just name them for you. So a life full of Jesus, full of the Spirit, is one marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay, when, when you think about your life, because I was doing it this week and I'm gonna ask you to do it too, when you think about your life, where are you not experiencing the fullness of Jesus? Love, joy, peace, patience. Ooh, that one stings a little bit. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where, where are you not experiencing the fullness of Jesus? If I had to guess, there's probably an area because none of us are perfect. This is the process of becoming more like Christ. We ask these questions. He reveals where we aren't quite like him yet. Now, what do we do? I don't wanna just say, okay, you're missing it this morning. Now, what do we do? What do we do? There's an area of our life that's not living to the fullness of Jesus. Okay, do we work harder? Do we try harder? Do we muster it up? I mean, think about a fruit tree. You, you, you judge a tree by its fruit, right? Fruits of the spirit. You don't, you don't try harder. Like a fruit tree doesn't like muster up this fruit. No, think about it. The countercultural ways of the kingdom. You don't have an area of your life that is reflective of Jesus. Okay, here's what I'm gonna tell you to do. Surrender that area of your life. Surrender that area, let go of that area, let go of that thing, let go of that place. Don't try harder, surrender more. Sit yourself in the presence of Jesus, abide. Okay, this area is not like I want it to be in my life. Okay, abide in Jesus. Not my advice, Jesus' advice. He says, hey, if you abide in me, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And what? you will bear much fruit. You have to remember the ways of the kingdom are countercultural. And then you also, you have the fruits of the spirit, but you also have the gifts of the spirit. And Paul in another letter, he says, hey, to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. This is in a letter to the church in Corinth. So the gifts of the spirit are given for the common good. And we know that each person each person who's a follower of Jesus is given unique gifts for the common good of one another. 
but not just for the common good of one another, for the advancement of his kingdom so that his kingdom can come. And Paul, he tells us, he encourages us. Okay, fruits of the spirit, but also he encourages, hey, desire the gifts of the spirit. Do you long for spiritual gifts? Are you aware of spiritual gifts? And I just kind of was asking as a church, hey, do we long for, do we ask for the gifts of the spirit? And so who are they? Who are these disciples? They are spirit-filled, spirit-led disciples of Jesus. Okay, let's continue, who they are. Now, in some ways we don't really know, which I think tells us a little bit about who they were. We don't know their names. Like we, we don't know exactly who these people were by name. And I love that we don't know the names of a small group of people that reached an entire country for Jesus. Don't know the names. They were, they were probably ordinary, average, working people. So they were average, they were ordinary, yet they were filled with the Spirit of God, which brings me to my last observation of who we see them to be, is they were hungry. They were hungry. They were hungry for God. Let's read verses 9 and 10 together. 9 and 10. Let's jump back in here. But some of them became obstinate. They, conf- they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. Real interesting insight here. I, this is a whole other sermon, but how you deal with conflict. You don't yell back at them on Facebook. You, you just kind of be quiet and you leave them a little bit. So that's what Paul's doing. He's like, okay, I'm not going to argue any longer. I'm just, I'm just going to kind of leave. And so this is what he does. He leaves and he took the disciples and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Crazy, right? So Paul realized, hey, my strategy of convincing the crowds is no longer working. Like, it's not working. Dust his hands off and what's he do? He finds a committed core. Every day for two years, these believers were meeting They were learning, they were growing in their faith. We don't know exactly, but we can imagine what Paul would do over the time of two years, teaching them the word of God, teaching them what it looks like to share their faith. So he's encouraging them, he's empowering them to continue the movement that Jesus had began. And now according to other manuscripts, uh, we know that they were meeting approximately from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So at this time when a lot of the jobs were manual labor, what would happen in ancient cities is people would take a break. They would rest from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And so you'd get up early in the morning, you'd work till about 11, you'd eat, and then you'd sleep. I'm like, more of that, yes, please. People were working outside, the Middle East, hottest time of the day, and so they would literally sleep, sleep for about four hours of the day, and then some people would go back to work later during that time. Then we have this, this character, Tyrannus. I mean, we really don't know much about him, but we know, obviously, because people didn't work during this time, they weren't using this lecture hall. And so he could have been a philosopher of some kind, a teacher of some kind. And so here's the small committed core of believers, and let's think about what, what's happening here. The small few who are hungry for the word of God while everyone else is sleeping, while everyone else is eating, they, they are they're in the presence of God together. They were hungry for God. And honestly, you take away two things in the Smith household and all 
else will crumble, food and sleep. Like you take away those two things, it ain't gonna be good. But here you have these believers and they are, they are hungry for God. I mean, scripture tells us those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled and that's what's happening. So who are these believers? Ordinary, average, spirit-filled, hungry followers of Jesus. Okay, we know who they were. What did they accomplish? Real quickly, they shared the message of Jesus with every single person in the entire province of Asia Minor. I tried to find all week about how many people this was. I couldn't. So if you find that out, let me know. It's a lot of people. A lot of people. Okay, we know what they did. How did they do it? In some ways, this story doesn't exactly tell us, but we know from other letters from Paul to churches in these cities and how the movement of Jesus was happening, we can kind of understand what was going on here with these, with these few that were meeting with Paul. And I just kind of want to boil, boil it down for us. And this is going to kind of be where we land the plane this morning. How is this happening? How was the movement of Jesus spreading like it was? Little by little, one by one, house church by house church. And slowly, the few were discipling a few more. And those few more were discipling a few more. And those few more were discipling a few more. And in two years, an entire country had heard the message in the gospel of Jesus. Ordinary men and women of God, filled with the spirit of God, being sent out not to convince the crowd, not to convince the crowd, but to invest and disciple a few. A few at a time. One at a time, this this mustard seed type of kingdom You see, David Ballou, I mean, he had no idea how a few simple invitations to church every Sunday would end up impacting the kingdom to come. How it would exponentially advance the kingdom of God in Huntsville, Alabama, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Nashville, Tennessee. Just one. This morning, that's what we're gonna walk away thinking, just one. Man, I don't know about you, but I get so caught up in thinking, okay, how am I gonna reach my neighborhood? How am I gonna reach my workplace? How am I gonna reach my dorm? How am I gonna reach my school? We forget that it simply just starts with one. One person at a time. Here's the thing. Our city, your city, would drastically change if every follower of Jesus took this seriously. If every follower of Jesus said, I'm gonna pick one person, I'm gonna pray for this person, I'm gonna serve this person, I'm gonna love this person. It would change the city of Nashville. It would change our entire country. It would change the world. So I ask you this morning, and I've been thinking about this this week, who is your one? Who is your one? Who is your one? Who's the one that I'm inviting you to commit to praying for every single day for the next year? Who's your one that you're gonna pray for every single day for the next year? Who's the one that you're going to love? Who's the one that you're gonna serve? Who's the one that you're gonna let into your life a little bit more than you've been letting them into your life? 
Who's the one that when God opens the door, you're gonna invite them to your house church? Who's the one that when God opens the door, you're gonna invite them to come worship with you on a Sunday? I promise it's gonna do way more and affect more than you will ever fathom or imagine. And I I think we'll discover that this is what we're made for. I think we'll discover as a church, we're gonna come alive. Because here's the thing. We were made for this. Jesus would not command us to live into something that he hadn't equipped us and made us for. And here's the thing, we gather every Sunday morning around the one, the table, the one who made this all possible. And so we never leave here thinking, okay, on my own strength and on my own power, no, right? Spirit-filled, spirit-led, ordinary men and women gathered around the one, empowered by the one who's allowed us, gifted us, commissioned us to find our ones. So this morning, and invite us over communion to kind of contemplate that. Here's the thing, don't feel the pressure like to have your one in your mind. We're, we're gonna go to communion together. We're gonna pray. If you have your one in mind, you know, yes, Lord, that's it. Praise God, you already know the person you're gonna be praying for, serving, loving. If you don't, hey, we're gonna use this time of communion to pray. God, who, who's my one this year? Who's my one? And I guarantee he loves that one more than you love that one, so he's gonna give you one. He's gonna give you one to love. He's gonna give you one to serve. Think about it, just this room. This, this room could double in size by the time next year if we just submitted ourselves to the ways and the will of Jesus. So I wanna invite us to stand. We're gonna go to the table together this morning. I'll pray for us. And then I invite you to just circle up chairs. Um, This is how we do communion here at Ethos. Uh, We we go to the table, we grab the cup, we grab the bread, we circle up around the room, we pray, we discuss, we talk. Um, So whatever God is stirring in you right now, I wanna invite you, um, share that with the person you're you're sitting beside. If If you need to just respond in a deeper way, We would love to pray, talk with you in the back by the respond banner. Uh, But let's go to the table, to the one this morning. Father, we are uh, just so in awe of uh, the fact that you have chosen us, that you have commissioned us, that you have empowered us to go out into this world. (laughs) God is amazing that you would choose to use us, that you wanna use us, that you desire to use us. And I look at myself and I think, okay, I don't have enough. Um, I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. But God, in your eyes, we, we, are, we, are, we are perfect because of the blood of Jesus. And so I, I'm just reminded of the kind of cliche phrase, um, you know, I don't call the equipped but I equip the called and you've called each and every person um, in this room to live this out. Um, it, is, it, is, it is in your will for this to happen. You say you want every person, every name, every tribe, every tongue to, to confess that Jesus is Lord. And God, we, we cannot do it on our own. We need you. God, where we have been um, maybe lacking in our uh, awareness of your spirit within us. 
um, I would ask that you would just resonate and fill um, where it is void and absent. There may be people in here this morning who are kind of asking the question, okay, now, what, what's the Holy Spirit? I've, I've never heard of the Holy Spirit. What's, what's that look like in my life? Um, God, I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would impart your Spirit upon every believer uh, in this room this morning. God, will you send us? Will you fill us? Uh, will you give us our one? Give us our one. Give us our Grady Smiths. Give us our David Blues. Give us our one God, and may you fill us with the stamina, the power, and the hope to love that person well. And Jesus, it is in your name that we pray, and together as a whole church, we say, amen.